0: The proclamation of God's word comes from John chapter 20 verses 1 through 23 and can be found on page 7 of your worship folder. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have laid him. they have taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, "Rabbi," which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When you head off to
1: college, a very common elective class that a freshman might need to take would be a class on comparative religion. I always feel very bad for the professors of comparative religion because you can tell that these men and women, they've spent their entire lives studying and doing their research, and so they're very excited to present their research, and yet They are in a room full of freshmen that could not give a rip about what these people are talking about. So there's lots of blank stares at these professors. You know, most freshmen are interested in in pre-med or business, not into comparative religion. So they have to sit through this very long semester of a very boring class, and then at the very end of a comparative religion semester, usually the sum of it goes something like, you know, we should respect to all major world religions, there are a few differences that are somewhat important, but at the very end of the day, all world religions are essentially the same. All religions have a, you know, a code or an ethic that you need to live by. There's certain rules that you need to follow. And, you know, when you really look at it, all world religions actually have the same sort of laws about you shouldn't kill people and you should give money to the poor and don't live in excess, be pious, pray. Of course, we are to love our neighbors and there is some kind of hope for an afterlife. And so, yes, all the world religions do have some differences, but these professors of comparative religion say all religions are essentially the exact same, just a man made way of coping with the hardship of life, just a, a very utilitarian way of understanding religion. And sadly, that kind of thinking exists not just in the academy, but that kind of thinking has now crept into the broader culture, that all religions are essentially the same. Now, I, I, I suppose on a very superficial, just sort of external look at religions, you could say... There are, I I guess, some similarities between Christianity and other religions with with praying or or giving or or something like that. But there is at least one major core difference. Like we say, you can't just judge a book by its cover. You, You need to move beyond just external examinations and you need to get to the actual core. You cannot just look at the surface but you need to get to the very center, the very core message of what a religion says. And this morning, we are going to get to the very heart of Christianity, the center, the core. And what we see at the center of Christianity is a man who has risen from the dead. All other religions center on someone who is dead. Dead Buddha is dead. Mohammed is dead. Confucius, he's dead. Joseph Smith, he is dead. Karl Marx, Joseph Stalin, they are all dead. What separates Christianity from everything else is that it rises and it falls on the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. If it really happened, if the resurrection is true, then it sets Christianity apart from every other system in the entire world. Now, if it didn't actually happen, if this is just a myth or a fable, then yes, just throw the Bible onto a stack of required reading for comparative religion off at a university. But if the resurrection did actually occur, then it changes everything. Now, now typically, this sermon text would be saved for Easter Sunday, which today is not. But we've been going through the gospel according to John now for a year and a half. And the culmination of this gospel account is going to be on Easter Sunday. And so just, just consider it a blessing that you get two Easter sermons this year. Here's what I want to do for this message this morning. We're going to look at the resurrection from two different angles. The first angle is that we're going to look at the truth of the resurrection. And then number two, we're going to look at the implications of the resurrection. So the truth of and the implications of. So let's start first with the truth of the resurrection. What we see here in the text, just a very plain reading, is that Jesus has risen on Sunday morning. He has left the tomb. He has walked out of The garden, he has met some women that evening. Jesus is going to go and meet with his disciples. For whatever reason, Thomas, the disciple, is not there. So then we pick up in verse 24 that we meet Thomas again, and we are told that Thomas is doubting that Jesus actually rose from the grave. Now there's lots of discussion. You know, was Thomas right? Or was he wrong to, to doubt before he saw Jesus risen from the grave? No, I'm not sure whether it's right or wrong, but, but all I know is that he actually did. That's just the honest truth. Thomas doubted. And I also know what is true today is that there are many that are still doubting the resurrection of Jesus from the grave. In fact, that's probably the, the dominant position in our culture today, that of doubt, and what doesn't help very much is that there are people with very impressive degrees and academic credentials that are telling us to doubt. And we're, we're just so, so taken back by, you know, letters like PhD, and we just automatically listen to them, and we, we take them at their word, and that we never actually ask the hard questions about those that are telling us to doubt. We are told that we are to doubt the authority of the story, and yet we were told that we should never doubt those that are telling us to doubt. So we're doubting Jesus, but we are not allowed to doubt the progressive culture. But but here's my encouragement for you this morning. I want you to be a consistent person So I want you to hold both sides to the exact same standard. If you're just going to doubt the authority of the Bible, then I would encourage you to doubt those that are saying that you ought to doubt, that you ought to doubt these smart people. Because when you begin to doubt the doubters, you'll begin to see that there is actually very good reason to believe in the resurrection. You know one of the, the most common reasons that we are told to doubt the resurrection is that Jesus did not actually die. This is a very wide uh, held position by doubters. We we are told by by these people, you know, Jesus he didn't actually die. He he, he was he was he was wounded. He just he he passed out. These, these soldiers, they, they, they were mistaken. They just placed an injured man in the tomb. And then, after three days of resting in a very nice, cool tomb, Jesus got his energy back and was able to remove the stone and then just carried on with normal life. And then, hence, the legend of this man named Jesus grew. And people think, oh, yes, that makes lots of sense. That, that, that must be it. That, that's the reason J- Jesus didn't actually die, he was just hurt. Therefore, if he didn't really die, it wasn't a real resurrection. He just passed out. He's probably going to date me, but like from the princess bride, Jesus was just mostly dead. And there's, there's actually really smart people that are saying this. But, but again, I just want you to, to, to question that position a little bit. Does that actually make any sense? You know, we saw last week in John chapter 19, about the Roman soldiers. The Roman soldiers were part of one of the most impressive military units in the history of the world. These men are trained killers. This was their job. This is how they supported their families. This was their vocation. These men knew when somebody had actually died. We saw again last week that they actually went around to check to see if Jesus was dead. And because he was not dead, therefore his legs were not broken. And then they stabbed a spear in his side just to, to double check. And that is when the blood and the water flew, flowed from his side. It seems very unlikely that not just one, but a whole group of Roman soldiers would be mistaken that Jesus was actually dead. That seems very unlikely to me. But again, let, let's, let's just press this line of thinking a little bit more. That, that Jesus was simply just knocked out that he passed out and was lying in a tomb we've seen jesus he has been flogged not just once but twice his back has been striped with blood likely from the flogging there were some bones maybe even organs that are visible he was a man that was so weak he was not able to carry his own cross up the hill so simon needed to help was a man who was nailed to the, the cross. He was a man who was stabbed in the side. So that blood and water flowed. It, it, Jesus did not experience just a, you know, a scrape on the knee. He, he didn't need just a few stitches. The body of Jesus is mangled. It, it would have been hard to even recognize him. And then they put his body into a dark tomb. In this dark tomb that there's no, there's no medicine, There's no food, there's no water, there's no nothing. And so we are told by the doubters that this ordinary man self-recovered to the point of moving a giant stone away from his own tomb. And then in Luke's account, we are told that after coming out of the tomb, Jesus walks seven miles from Jerusalem to Emmaus, seven miles can you imagine that a mostly dead unresurrected man in this state walking 7 miles he, he's bleeding his guts are exposed no medicine no doctors 3 days after being hung on a cross this man is able to walk 7 miles 7 miles is from here at Redeemer up to the mire an 8 mile Looked it up on Google. It says it would take two hours and forty-five minutes. Now, now I recognize we, we live in Detroit, so we see jacked-up things all the time. But even after living in Detroit for five years, I have never seen anything nearly as jacked up as a man who has just hung on a cross, walking seven miles up Woodward to my, admire. That it just—it doesn't happen. That's impossible. His body has been beat up. He's bleeding. The organs are hanging out. It was not simply that Jesus self-recovered in a tomb and that he was able to move away the rock and then go for a seven-mile walk. It's ridiculous. The idea that Jesus would hang from a cross and then just walk out after healing. you know—that There's others. Again, this is another very common idea. There's others that say, you know, these women... These disciples, they're grieving. And in their grief, because of all the hopes they had for Jesus, they just have an illusion of Jesus rising from the grave. They're just sort of daydreaming in their grief. Some say, well, no, this is just a great analogy, or this is a, a metaphor in life for how we are to overcome. But it, it, when you actually read the story, then look at the history, none of that makes any sense of, at all. Here's, I've mentioned this before. Here's one of the most important aspects of biblical interpretation is that you need to understand that the writers of the Bible are not dumb. You know, so many people today, sort of in the ivory towers of the academy today, just look back and say, oh, yes, we are so smart, and we know so well, but people 2,000 years ago, they were, they were so dumb. And, and, and they could be tricked, and they could be deceived, but, but we know better than you, and therefore listen to us. But, but these people are not dumb. They saw what they saw, and they saw a man named Jesus who was killed on a cross, and they saw a dead body go into a tomb, and they saw three days later a dead man come back to life and interacted with them. Consider this, the majority of the disciples that interacted with the resurrected Jesus Christ would end up giving their lives to him. Most of them died as martyrs. You would not go and be a martyr for a man whose greatest accomplishment is simply being able to be beat up. As you know, uh, Pastor Dan is is one of my, my good friends, I would do a lot for Dan. You know, if Dan came to my door and he was beat up by the authorities and he's bleeding and he's flogged, I would do a lot. I would heal him and we would call the doctor, but I would not go and be a martyr in Dan's name if that's all he's able to do. I would need Dan to do something a little bit more impressive than just be able to be beat up for me to go and be a martyr in his name. The disciples are not willing to be martyrs just for a man that was crushed on a cross and could do nothing about it. No, they saw a resurrected man, and therefore they were willing to give their lives for him. The disciples saw Jesus. They saw him crucified. They saw him placed in a tomb. And with those very same eyes, they saw him resurrected. You see, when you begin to doubt what the doubters are claiming— you begin to realize that there are many holes in their arguments and that perhaps the best understanding of this story is just a plain reading of it as an historical account that a number of people saw a man raised from the grave— now, is it yes? Can it be hard to believe that Jesus rose from the grave? It, yes, it is. It's, this is not the kind of thing that happens very often. But, but I find it harder to believe that the universe was made from nothing, or I find it harder to believe that there is a thing called morality without a transcendent God that grounds it. Or I find it very hard to, to believe that the largest movement in the history of the world, that is the church, is built upon a lie. The best reading of this text is to take it at face value, to read it as an historical account, not that Jesus was mostly dead or not that Jesus was an illusion, but that he actually died and he actually rose. Now, 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 Thomas was granted a privilege that we will not have this side of eternity. Thomas was actually able to see and touch Jesus. But when you are able, by faith, to doubt the doubters, you will begin to see what Thomas saw that Jesus is the Christ and that he has risen from the grave. One of the things that we have seen a number of times now going through the gospel according to John, and we'll see this verse coming up very soon, is that this gospel account was written so that you might believe that the Christ is Jesus. You'll notice in your English versions it says Jesus is the Christ. I prefer that the Christ is Jesus, namely because John's assumption in writing this book is that we all have a Christ, a Lowercase c Christ. By Christ, I just mean a, a principle, a value, a person, a thing, a system. You, you have something that is giving you purpose and value in life. And when you begin to to, to press into that, it, it might be Jesus, it might be Buddha, it might be your four hundred one k. But but you have something in your life that is giving you value and purpose. And when you begin to question what Christ is the most real, what Christ is the most helpful, what Christ can actually stand on its own, you will begin to realize that Jesus, as the only and real Christ, has risen from the grave. Therefore, you ought to believe in him above everything else. So, that was the first point the truth of the resurrection. Now, to the second point the implications for this story. What are the implications? for the resurrection. Because it it is possible for this story to be true and for it to have no meaning on your life. You know, there's a lot of events in world history that have happened that, that don't necessarily affect your life. And so beyond just simple curiosity or even amazement, why should you care all that much about a man in the Middle East who was raised from the grave 2,000 years ago. Now, to, to answer that question, I want you to remember the, the context for when this event is happening. We read earlier, again in John chapter 19, that Jesus was killed on the day of Passover preparation. So this, this is the reason that everyone is now back in the city. This is the Passover The first Passover, of course, was when Israel was enslaved in Egypt. They are trying to get out. God sends a number of plagues. The final and harshest of the plagues was the final one, and this is when the judgment of God is going to move through the region. The firstborn are going to be killed. So judgment of God, going to see sin, and the result is going to be death. As a form of salvation, as, as a means of grace, God says to His people, "We need to go and get a lamb, and I want that lamb to be slaughtered, and the blood of that lamb ought to be painted above the doorpost. And as the judgment of God moves through the region, God sees the blood, and He passes over His people. So everything that has been happening during Holy Week has all been building up to this big Passover moment. This has been one of the things that we've seen unfolding in this entire gospel account. Remember, from the very beginning of the gospel according to John, when John the Baptist sees Jesus coming down the hill, John the Baptist says, look at that man. See him. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. One of the very first designations of who Jesus is in this gospel account is that Jesus is the final Passover lamb. Like all the other lambs that have gone before Jesus, all of them have been killed, slaughtered as substitutes, as bloody substitutes, so that God might pass over his people. And Jesus has come as the final lamb. Jesus in his life, now in his death, all of it is as a form of preparation to be offered up as the final lamb. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 3, the wages of sin is death. So Jesus, on the cross, is the final Passover lamb. He's taking credit for our sin. He's, he's, he's bearing the curse. He's actually cursed. Cursed is the man who hangs on the tree, Sin demands death. Jesus took credit for sin. Therefore, Jesus died on the cross to pay the wage. But what happens when the wage has been paid? What happens when there is no longer a debt that is owed? If if, if the wage has been completely paid, it would be unjust of God to keep Jesus in the grave. If, If there's no sin that remains, then there is no longer death that needs to be received, meaning Jesus had to be raised from the ground. The resurrection of Jesus is the proof for just how complete the life and death of Jesus is. Think of the resurrection as this. Think of the resurrection as a receipt. You know receipts are proof of a completed transaction. And so the resurrection proves that Jesus completed the transaction as the final Lamb of God. So here's the implication for you. If you live by faith in Christ... You have the receipt of the resurrection to use whenever any form of condemnation ever comes your way. Imagine this you want to take your wife out for a birthday date. And so it's her birthday, you're going to go all out. You're going downtown Detroit. You're going to the best restaurant. This is not Applebee's on a date night. No, this is high-end. And this is the kind of restaurant that only the ballers can go to. So so you're all dressed up. You're wearing a collar. You got a jacket on. Your wife's looking really good. You order multiple courses at this place. You get the best wine. You get top-notch service. No expense is spared on this date. At the end of the date, you get a very big Check, And so you owe this restaurant a lot of money. But you, you, you listen to Dave Ramsey. And so you've you, prepared for this. You're on the envelope system. So you actually pull out cash and you, you pay. And then you, you walk out of the restaurant. You're having a great night. But as soon as you walk out of the restaurant, the manager runs up to you and says, Hey, you didn't pay. You, you, you still owe us money. And you, you get a little nervous and you, you start to sweat because you remember just how big the debt is, how big that bill was. But then you remember, ah, I have the receipt. I, I have the proof that the debt has been paid. I, I, I have the proof that the balance is down To zero. And so you pull out that receipt and you have a little swagger and you show it to that manager and you walk out of that restaurant in full confidence, knowing that manager can never hold anything over you again because the debt has been paid. That's the resurrection. It's the proof that the wage has been paid. The wages of sin is death. And Jesus in both his life and in his death has paid that wage with such fullness and with such finality and with such completion that the only option that God the Father had as a just God was to raise Jesus from the ground. It's the receipt, it's, it's the proof that it's done, it's over. It's finished. There is nothing left to be done. It is finished with the final words of Jesus on the cross, so finished, in fact, that three days later, Jesus would rise from the ground. Here's what this all means. It means that if you belong to Jesus, you have the receipt of the resurrection, That that, that sin no longer controls you in your life. So whenever your sinful nature begins to bring you down, you flash the receipt of the resurrection. And you can live in confidence, knowing that there is no longer a debt that is owed. Because of the receipt of the resurrection, when the devil whispers in your ear, you claim the receipt of the resurrection and say, No, the plan is complete. The plan is over. I live in Christ, not in the death that you provide to me. When shame lives in your head, you claim the receipt of the resurrection and you know that by his wounds you have been healed. When death knocks on your door, you claim deep down inside of your bones that will you, yes, one day go into the ground. When you die, you will also one day rise, both body and soul, because you belong to Jesus Christ who has conquered sin and death. You see, the, the, the resurrection... It does not add to anything that we have seen Jesus do in his life in the gospel, according to John. It does not add to anything that we saw in John 19. It does not add to his death. The resurrection does not add to his life nor to his death, but rather the resurrection is the proof that everything that we have seen now for a year and a half in this gospel account, that everything that we have seen for 19 chapters, the resurrection is the proof that everything that Jesus was called to do, he has done it so well, it's over. It's the proof. It is the receipt. From Herman Bovink, he says, the resurrection of Christ is the amen. Of the Father upon the finished of the Son. So if, if if you if you really take hold of the resurrection in your life, and not, not just yeah, uh, I know some of the basic details, or I know some of the facts, but when you really fight to to, to believe, to internalize the implications of the resurrection in your life, you, you'll actually become an untouchable person sin won't bring you down because you'll know that sin has been defeated. Death won't scare you because you know of the life to come. Anxiety and depression won't trouble you because you know the end of the story. Enemies won't faze you because you'll know that you belong to the king who has crushed every enemy, including the greatest enemy, death itself. Taking hold of the resurrection is the key to becoming an untouchable person. This is what makes Christianity different than every other worldview, every other world religion, even the secular systems, because at the center of Christianity is a man raised from the dead. So, yes, on, on some very superficial Level at a freshman elective class off at a Big Ten school, you might think, oh, Christians pray just like Buddhists and like Muslims pray, and, and yeah, Christians just trying to make the, the world a better place like Oprah, and so we're all basically saying the same thing. At a superficial glance, they all sort of look the same, but when you get to the core, the actual center of what Christianity is, you'll see that Christianity is diametrically opposed to every other system because at the center of our system is resurrection, and what is resurrection? Resurrection, at its core, is completion and life. And at the core of everything else is incompletion and death. It is finished, Was this cry? The proof of just how finished it was, the receipt of this completed transaction is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we give you thanks for your son, Jesus Christ, eternal in age, infinite wisdom, your only begotten son that you sent not to live in a palace, not to live as a king, but to humble himself, to live amongst us, to humble himself to the point of death. And Jesus, we give you thanks for all that you did in your life. We give you thanks for all that you did in your death. You did it all so well, all so faithfully that you rose from the ground. Oh, Father, we give you thanks for the resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ. And by your grace, through your Holy Spirit now, remind us of it. Help us to live in light of it. Help us to internalize it. All for your honor. In Jesus' name, amen.